This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Okay, now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Tom Sanborn, uh, Hell's History. Uh, I'll just read what it says. Why are so many Canadians working st- workers still dying on the job, and why aren't their employers held more accountable? Tom Sanborn, who covered labor for the TIE, details preventable deaths caused by a 1992 fireball in Nova Scotia's Westray coal, coal mine and the result, resulting lightly enforced law meant to hold owners accountable. He draws, he draws ties to the 2012 lethal sawmill explosions in BC's interior and brings the story up to date. The name of the book is Hell's History, the United Steelworkers' Fight to Prevent Workplaces deaths and injuries from the 1992 Westray Mine disaster through, ni- to, through 2016. Sorry about that. Uh, please join me in welcoming Tom to our meeting today. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. I feel like I'm in church this time of uh, Sunday morning. I'm normally still sloping around in my pajamas, drinking coffee and eating pastries, which is probably more of a visual than any of you need to endure. So, So... I was thinking about humanism and humanists and what it might arguably have to do with this book and a lot of my work. Uh, And I don't know how you all define humanism, but it seems to me that it's a uh, perspective that starts with the fact that human experience is fundamental and respect for other human beings is required not only by high ethics, but by the fact that our lives are so interdependent that we so much make and unmake each other in conversation and in shared work. And so uh, a humanist ethic, I think, is one that uh, is in favor of compassion, is in favor of cooperation, and is against unfair brutalization. So I feel right at home with you guys. And actually, when I drove handy dart bus for 20 years, I was in and out of this space a number of times bringing passengers. So I feel right at home probably more at home than I would if I was at church this morning. So, um, A lot of us don't know that every single year about a thousand Canadian workers die because of going to work. Every single year. A thousand deaths. Um, la- the last figures available from Stats Canada are from 2016 and they're a little understated and are clearly an undercount because of the way they're put together. But even on the reports from workers' compensation groups across the country, we're looking at 905 people who died in 2016. And that total has varied between 900 and 1,100 uh, for a number of years, despite the efforts of organized labor and social democratic governments to make things safer at the workplace. It's still pretty dangerous to go to work. And um, some of those deaths are totally unavoidable. Shit happens, right? But a lot of them are the result of management decisions. A lot of them are the result of decisions to cut corners on safety, to speed up work, to in one way or another put the 
the black bottom line of the corporation ahead of the red bottom line of the workers who die for it. Hell's History is a book that tries to take up some of the issues that are raised by that. Uh, it's funded by the United Steelworkers, and uh, it's a collection of stories, but it starts with the story of the workers at the Westray Mine in Nova Scotia. And many of you will know that for more than a century, people have been dying in the coal fields of Nova Scotia. Miners have gone underground, and they've gone underground into settings that are often very unsafe for them. And uh, the death toll there is enormous. In 1992, a company called Karag, um, which was headed up by, let me, how, how can I say this in the most measured possible terms? A homicidal, lethal asshole named Clifford Frame, who, I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, who was very close both to the provincial government and the federal government, said, I've got a great idea. Let's cobble together this new company. And they don't call them limited liability companies for nothing. Um, let's cobble together this new company, mainly using government money, taxpayer money, and let's go underground in uh, the Ford range and make a lot of money. And it was a hard sell because this is a range that is notoriously unstable, where mines have blown up and collapsed over and over again. There are a lot of Nova Scotia miners buried under, underground in uh, the ground underneath New Glasgow and Plymouth, where this mine was proposed. But throwing caution to the winds, Mr. Frame took the government money and the support and started building this mine. Well, actually, real working people did the actual labor of, of building the mine, but he and the suits in the boardroom um, made decisions repeatedly in the run-up to the opening of the mine and in the first year of the mine's operation that put people's lives at danger. The, the first thing that might have been a flag for people, might have been a worry for people, was that they didn't honor the map of the mine that they were going to build that they submitted to the government that was part of their uh, licensing procedure. They took a drift off into another part of the, uh, the coal field, which was even less geologically stable than the, the area that they'd been licensed for. Nobody did anything. They uh, established a very inadequate ventilation system in the mine. Nobody did anything. They finally got the mine up and running, and they were in, they were in an economic crisis at this point. Uh, they were losing money on several of their other mines. They had a big sweetheart deal with uh, Nova Scotia Power to buy a chunk of this uh, coal, but that was dependent on them starting deliveries at a certain point. So the pressure went up on the coal miners to go fast, to ignore, to ignore um, safety regulations to keep driving into the coal face and make the money for Mr. Frame and his uh, accomplices in the boardroom. They ignored the fact that all through the construction of this mine and all through the first months of the mine's existence, little problems occurred like the roof falling in or uh, small explosions, small fires. And um, guys that I talked to who worked in that mine in the 90s talked about wading through coal dust over their boots. Coal, coal dust, which is a very fine particulate matter that's produced when you work the coal face, and, uh, 
an explosive, a very dangerous explosive, if it's not ventilated out and or stone dusted. The two things you can do to, to prevent little inconveniences like the mine blowing up is you can install a proper ventilation system, right? Or, and or you can use stone dusting, which is ground inert stone onto the floor so that you hold the coal dust down. None of that happened adequately. Provincial inspectors came to the mine over and over and over again. Nobody blew the whistle. Nobody stopped this. So for about nine months of the first year of this mine's operation, guys were working in increasingly un unsafe conditions. The uh, coal dust was getting deeper. There's more and more dust in the air. And one of the things about coal mining is that when you cut into the coal face, coal face, you release methane gas, which is, again, explosive, right? What could possibly go wrong? Explosive coal dust, explosive methane, inadequate preparations. Um, one of the things that I learned from miners who survived, who were on another shift when the mine blew up, was that management was coming down into the mine and taping shut the methane detectors. One of the basic safety features if you're uh, mining coal is you keep track of how much methane is in the air and when it gets above a, a certain level, you shut down the, the machines until the methane problem is dealt with. They didn't want, at Karag, they didn't want to mess with that. They didn't want to have any of their production stopped. So the management came down and taped shut the methane detectors and the methane levels went up in the mine. Well, as I said, what could possibly go wrong? Well, what could possibly go around and wrong in 1992 is that the inevitable spark came off of the coal face and ignited the methane that was accumulating at the, uh, the top of the, uh, the drift. So there's an initial explosion, and that explosion drives a bunch of coal dust up into the air, and the whole damn mine turns into an explosive device. There's a fireball that goes from one end of the mine to the other and kills 26 miners in less than a minute. I am grateful to the United Steelworkers for funding this book, booklet, book-like object, um, but they're their lawyers would not allow me to use the title that I particularly wanted to use, which is Murder Incorporated. Can't imagine why. They said that I was free to get myself in trouble, but not the union. So I try to mention that as the working title whenever I, I talk about this. Um, talk to a man who was working at the head of the pit, the place where the mine went underground. His younger brother, was working underground and brought up some equipment in the middle of the shift and talked about how everybody underground was having, a hor having horrible headaches. And um, that's a known result of breathing too much methane, right? Uh, Alan urged his brother to book off sick and go home, but he didn't. He was 22 and he wanted to keep up with the other miners and so he went back down underground. Half an hour later, Alan is standing, working outside the mine, and hears this enormous explosion and sees a belch of fire come out of the, the surface of the mine, and everything shakes. And that was the last he'd seen of his 22-year-old brother. Um, he was the youngest miner who died in the, um, in the explosion, and the oldest guy was in his late 50s. And they were all Nova Scotia miners, and they were all dead in a minute. Now, you might think, given 
the failures of investigation, the failures of uh, control by the regulators, um, the errant defiance of the law by the, uh, the coal company, you might think that somebody would be held responsible, right? I mean, this is, this is a really important principle. I think humanists would agree. It's not okay to kill other people, right? In fact, I often tell people that I talk to about it that the history of law and due process is a lot about the evolution of who can get away with committing murder and who can't. And in Canada, we've made the wonderful progressive decision that we don't kill anybody in the prisons, that there's not a death penalty in our criminal system. We've transferred it to our, our economy, where we kill a thousand workers a year. Uh, many of them dead because the people in suits who run the operation have decided that it's cheaper to let them die than it is to take the proper safety regulations. Um, so this is an interesting story in terms of the evolution of law. The 26 miners and the, the survivors who weren't, weren't on shift that day had all been in discussions with the United Steelworkers about them represent the union representing them uh, at the mine. They hadn't signed a contract or been certified, so there was no formal relationship yet. But the steelworkers, to their credit, kept faith with these guys and with the women and kids and uh, other miners who survived. And they've stayed connected with this issue for the last 27 years, 26 years. When I stopped doing regular uh, labor coverage for the TAI. I approached the steelworkers and suggested this document be developed. And my concept at that point was that it would be something they'd put on the website and download and use for, uh, for training uh, new union officers and the like. Um, however, they may, be, they may have been on drugs when I finally filed the, uh, the manuscript with them because they decided, oh no, this is really a book. We're going to publish it. So. This is the little non-vela that came out of that. And it starts with the story of the Westray Mine and the Westray Mine disaster. 26 dead men. After the mine blew up, the draggermen, the, um, the rescue miners, went back in. While the walls of the mine were still working, while the fires were still burning, these guys went underground to try to bring the other miners up. And one of the survivors of that said to me, you don't have to ask me what hell looks like. I've been in hell. Uh, they got underground, they got 15 of their fellow miners up and available for the family to have some kind of burial and some kind of closure. 11 of them are still underground. They couldn't get deep enough, they couldn't find them. So uh, at the uh, place at the surface, over where the deepest part of the mine was, They've, the families and the union have established a, um, a memorial park. And this little pin that I've got on my vest is a miniature of the sculpture that they built at the top of the mine. With, it's a replica of a miner's lantern. And it has the name of each of the 26 miners who, um, who were murdered by their employer, in my view. So, okay, maybe something will happen now. Maybe there'll be some accountability. Maybe they'll not get away with murder this time. The, uh, there was a huge public outcry. People in Nova Scotia take deaths in the mines pretty seriously. They've had to deal with it for a long time. The RCMP took a look. Um, 
the uh, government assigned a noted jurist, a uh, guy who'd been a, a judge in the Nova Scotia Supreme Court to do an investigation. And nobody in Plymouth and Glasgow, nobody in the mining town where this tragedy happened, expected very much out of the inquiry. This is an establishment guy. He's a, a wealthy lawyer. He's close to the government. Probably it'll be a whitewash. But to his credit, the, uh, the learned judge, and if you wanted to have a picture of anybody you would assume would take the establishment point of view, you could use him as a uh, kind of archetype. He uh, was old and white-haired and portly, like me, but has better, better tailor. You got to see this guy to really appreciate the irony of what happened next. The surprise started with the opening pages of the, the uh, report when he finally released it, in which he quotes a French mine inspector who says, the most important thing that ever comes out of the mine is a living miner. And that's the product you want to protect before anything else. So this is Judge Richard. Looks like an establishment guy, well-fed, well-barbered. But he had a come-to-Jesus moment when he did this investigation. He was so outraged by the record of incompetence and willful silence that went into regulating the mine and went into funding the mine and went into allowing it to happen that he called it, um, he called it for what it was. He talked about incompetence. He talked about willful failure. He talked about the deaths of the miners. And most crucially, he called for a change in Canadian criminal law. He put forward the radical idea that if you kill a worker, you ought to go to jail, that there ought to be some legal accountability for making these decisions. And he called for the creation of new criminal law. Nothing happened. Uh, at the provincial level, Clifford Frame and his accomplices refused to come back to Nova Scotia under their lawyers' uh, guidance, and the, the preliminary charges that had been laid against a couple of the, uh, the mine uh, executives were dropped. So 26 dead, no accountability. Just keep moving along here. There's not, nothing to see here, folks. Well, people were still pissed and heartbroken about what had happened to their family members and their friends. And the union met with them, and they decided that what they'd do is they'd start lobbying in Ottawa for the law change that uh, Justice Richard had called for. So year after year after year, these rough and ragged guys from the mines went out to Ottawa and stalked up and down the halls of uh, Parliament, cornering senators and, and MPs, and making the case to them that their lives mattered as much as other Canadian lives, and that if they're going to be killed, there ought to be some accountability. It took the better part of a decade to make that case persuasive enough to our political masters that a law was passed. It's called the Westray Act in honor of the mine and the, the mine workers. And it creates a new criminal entity called uh, criminal negligence that allows the passing, laying of charges against people who make the decisions that, that kill workers unnecessarily. So great news, eh? The people have spoken, the parliament has uh, listened, and now we've got a new regime of justice in Canada. Well, it turns out 
Not so much. Not, not as much as everybody had hoped for. In the first decade after this law was finally passed, nobody went to jail. So do the math. Every single year you're seeing a thousand deaths. Some of them are caused by management decisions. Nobody goes to jail. There are very, there's a small handful of charges laid, and those charges are typically against low-level people in small operations. Uh, you know, Luigi, the uh, contractor who backs up over his cousin uh, doing a uh, yard job with a uh, piece of ill-tended Ill equipment, was charged. But the executives at Kurog Mining were not charged. Um, the executives at Kiwit Construction here in BC, and I'll talk about their case in a little bit, were not charged. It was very thin and exclusively for small operations and, and uh, unimportant people, the kind of people who didn't get to go and have drinks with the judge or the politicians. Um, so over that 10 years, as I say, there were a few charges laid and a lot of frustration built up. And then in 2012, some of you will remember here in BC, we had two sawmills in the interior blow up and kill people and scar people for life at Burns Lake and just outside of, um, of Prince George. And one of the things that's striking, if you look at the backstory on these, these mill explosions, is how similar it is to what happened in 1992 at the, uh, at the West Ray Mine. Way too much tiny particulate matter in the air. One of the things that's changed in the woods in BC in the last decade or two is that because of climate change, a lot more of the wood that's being processed is beetle-killed wood, which is very dry and um, makes, when you cut it, a very fine particulate matter, right? So these mills were full of fine sawdust. These mills were also full of management decisions that endangered the people who worked in them. Um, we have to go faster, we have to extend the shifts, we have to cancel the cleanup shift. So right across the province, a lot of the mills where people were working were full of this fine sawdust and inadequately ventilated. And um, unsurprisingly, there were lots of fires and lots of small explosions. And again, like the Westray pattern, the regulatory body that was supposed to keep workers safe didn't. Uh, there were WorkSafe BC people who went into, um, into these mills over and over again and in some cases noticed that they were dirtier and dirtier with sawdust and uh, didn't shut down the operation, didn't, uh, didn't call for reforms in terms of the cleanup regime. And this gets particularly interesting in the time between the two mill explosions. So Burns Lake is the first one to go up and in early 2012. And uh, two workers are dead, and 21 workers are hideously scarred and burnt and left with the nightmares of being caught in the fireball. I think that probably as many people would have been killed if they were underground the way they were in the mine. The, the mill workers had a little more chance to survive, and they did. So, okay, now we've paid with the life of a couple of workers, we know that this is dangerous. You'd think there'd be a, a big push by WorkSafe BC to uh, get into the mills and inspect them and get the ventilation going right and prevent this happening again. 
Again, not so much. One of the things that we've uncovered in the research for this book is that during the interval between the first mill explosion and the second mill explosion, there was a memo circulated at Workplace BC about how we better not push too hard. We better not be too hard on the industry because there'll be industry pushback. And so months went by, none of these mills were told to clean up, none of these mills were told to protect their, their workers' lives. And five months later, it happened again at Lakeland. Another spark, an explosion, the mill blows up. 2012? Yeah, yes, and that's, that's not unrelated. Uh, this was a WorkSafe BC that has consistently, under the Liberals, been anti-worker and done their best to, to reduce benefits for workers who are injured and done their best to cut back on, uh, on inspections. So it's, again, a place where people were killed. And you couldn't have killed them more directly if you came into the mill and shot them in the head. But uh, well-behaved politicians and uh, lawyers don't do that. They, have, they do their killing at, a, at one remove. But it's murder still. Um, in my book, you'll also find stories about some of the other deaths that happened between 92 and 2012 that weren't prosecuted. Uh, one is particularly interesting to us here in BC because the employer is uh, a company called Kiwit Construction. And I don't know if any of you have worked construction or road building in the province or... Have you heard that name, Kiwit? Yeah. Yeah. Do you work for them? No. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, my advice to you is be very, very cautious about working for these bastards. They, uh, they have a, uh, an ugly habit of killing their workers. Um, the, the death that I focus on in my, uh, in my book, it's a kid named Sam Fitz, Fitzpatrick. He was 24 years old. He was working on a run-of-the-river uh, power station that was being built up at Toba Inlet. Uh, his younger brother was working with him. And they um, go to work one day, and they're, they're doing the work of clearing uh, a slope that's been excavated so that concrete can be laid. And they're breaking up big um, boulders. So they're working away, and all of a sudden, a huge boulder is knocked down the hill by heavy equipment that the, the genius who was supervising the worksite had put directly above these guys. And the boulder comes down and just barely misses them and hits a truck and does $100,000 worth of damage. Everybody's breathless. Everybody's glad that nobody got killed. There's a safety meeting. And they're assured, this won't happen again. We're going to change this. We're not going to let the boulders come down and kill you. Comforting thought. So the brothers go home. They have their night. They go back to work. And the management puts them in exactly the same situation. They're on the slope, breaking up boulders, and above them, heavy equipment is shifting boulders and, and logs around. They protested. They said, you know, this looks dangerous. This could kill us. And uh, the standard response I learned from a number of Kiwit employees uh, was, do the job or walk. Uh, any complaints, and we'll fire you. That was a factor, and the fact that these boys were 22 and 24, you know, when you, are, when you know that you're bulletproof and nothing's going to ever kill you, and you want to show that you're a good worker. So they went to work, and they spent all morning breaking up these boulders and hearing the heavy equipment above them. 
and watching the rain come in and soften the, the mud in this, the slope above them. And close to, to lunchtime, Arlen goes down to get his lunch and his brother's lunch and bring it back up to where they're working. And uh, he hears a lot of shouting on, the, um, on the, the radios in the trucks. And he looks up and there's another boulder coming down the same way it did the day before. Only this time, he sees his brother killed and in front of his eyes. The boulder strikes him and mashes him into paste and he's dead on arrival. Um, the WorkSafe work BC inspectors did a fairly decent job uh, in retrospect, although they, they hadn't done much preventative. They, they did bring in a, a very scathing report about how inadequately the company had um, followed safety rules and how, again, the combination of long shifts and speed up and in it, inadequate attention to safety meant that the, the work site was a killing field. So, this, it turns out, was not the first time that people associated with that project and with Kiewit had died. A few months before that, the uh, company that flew workers into the site under constant pressure from the company to fly even in bad weather, took off to take six Kiewit workers back up to the site. And the weather was ugly and it got uglier and it brought the plane down and six people died in that flight. Um, the Federal safety inspectors said, we can't be sure that the company insisted that the flight happen that day, so we can't assign blame. But we can be sure that over time, the company had been pressuring the um, airline to fly in bad weather and that they continued after the death. So six deaths in the plane, Sam's death. The, in the end, the, the work at BC brought down a fairly negative judgment against Kiewit and charged them with a quarter million dollar fine. Which, again, sounds like a lot of money. But I want to ask you, you know, if somebody had your kid at gunpoint and said, I'll give you a quarter million dollars if it's okay to kill him, you'd probably say no. Well, some teenagers, <laughs> maybe, maybe you'd be willing to negotiate. Could you just shoot him in the foot? <laughs> but um, Kiewit appealed took their high-priced lawyers into appeal and got the fine cut way down from a quarter million dollars to less than a hundred thousand dollars. And at this point, nobody's been subject to any, um, any accountability. Nobody's gone to jail. I can tell you that um, Brian Fitzpatrick, who's one of the heroic figures that you'll meet in this book, was the father of Sam and Arlen, and he devoted the rest of his life to raising hell about his son's death and pushing for accountability. The month before he died, he got news from the RCMP that they were reopening the file, that they were taking a look at whether there'd be a possibility of making criminal charges against somebody at Keywood about Sam's death. That was more than a year ago, and the Crown Counsel, who is now my best friend forever because I talk to him every week, keeps telling me that they still have the file open and they haven't made a decision yet and they're having a hard time, but they will make a decision. We don't know for a fact that the decision will be to lay charges, but the fact that they're taking so long to come to it might be hopeful. So there may in fact be, in the long run, some justice for Sam and his family. Um, young woman named Christy uh, Christian who was working at a um, 
a quarry out at Stave Lake uh, a few years ago had been hired and put on a huge truck without proper training. And the second day she was at work, um, the truck rolled on her and killed her. So she'd had less than a week at work before she died. And there was clear breach of safety procedures, clear breach of um, training demands. Uh, that case has been in the courts for almost a decade now. And we finally got a, a resolution a couple of months ago now. And the good news is that the quarry company was held legally responsible. The bad news was that the price of her life was $100,000. There was a $100,000 fine, and uh, the company's free to go on killing other people. This is the pattern that you see over and over in Canada. You know, I should say, actually, one important, interesting thing about that figure of 1,000 deaths a year is about a half of those deaths aren't the kind of incident that I've just been describing to you. They're asbestos poisoning. For years and years and years, for decades, Canada allowed the, um, the mining and the use of asbestos despite the medical evidence that uh, it was lethal to people. And it has a very long tail. We're seeing now people who were exposed in the 70s and 80s still dying. So about half a thousand of those deaths are dying of mesothelioma, which is a particularly ugly and uh, painful lung condition that you only get if you've been exposed to asbestos. So the story arc in this book is from the disaster at the Westray Mine, through the lobbying to try to get a, a law change, through the decade of very frustrating lack of enforcement, and through the, um, the mill fires in 2012, which demonstrated that things had not changed anywhere near as much as we'd hoped for. In response to that, the um, Steelworkers Union has launched a campaign called Stop the Killing, Enforce the Law. And it's a really radical campaign that calls on the federal government and the provincial government and the RCMP and the uh, regulatory bodies that are supposed to be responsible for people's uh, safety to actually enforce the black letter law and to investigate properly and to use the law to hold some of these guys accountable. Well over 50 municipalities have endorsed this campaign. A lot of trade unions have endorsed this campaign. A lot of civil society groups have, in, have endorsed this campaign. We're starting to see a bit of movement, uh, but it's still nowhere near where it needs to be. And in a very small way, this book is meant to be a part of the campaign and the public pressure to keep this in front of the public, to keep us talking about it, keep us talking to uh, our political masters about it and bring the, the unnecessary death toll down. The great American philosopher Richard Rorty said that the whole point of progressive politics is to reduce unnecessary suffering. And I can't think of any suffering that's more unnecessary than watching your kid or your husband or your wife go off to work in the morning and getting a phone call halfway through the day that they're dead. That's what happens to thousands of Canadians over the years. And a significant number of those deaths were preventable. If regulatory bodies had done their job, if the administrators and the foremen and the board members of the company had done their job, um, a lot fewer deaths.
So it's an open-ended story. We don't know yet how this comes out, although the increase in public awareness and the increase in public pressure leaves us hopeful that there will be real changes in terms of how, how safety regulations are enforced and how the law is enforced if people are killed at work. So stay tuned for this one, okay? Um, as I say, I'm, I'm sure not one of you would let your kid be shot for $100,000 or let a thousand people die to keep the, the churn of the uh, economy going. But that's the reality in Canada today. We don't kill people in prisons, but we do kill people at work sites. And the people who are responsible go off like Clifford Frame, the guy who founded Karag Coal, to live in a mansion. And uh, the one ugly piece of irony that if I had, was doing this as fiction, I'd have to edit out because it's too perfect, is that several months before the Westray mine blew up, they were awarded a mining award as the safest miners in Nova Scotia. Again, you can't make this shit up. The safest miners in Nova Scotia, partly because miners were deeply discouraged from reporting any injuries, right? And the way that the award was decided was by what was reported to government. So lots of people were bought out or bullied out and didn't report their injuries. The miner who went to the ceremony to receive the safest mine award went back to work and was one of the 26 guys who died in the mine when it exploded a few months later. But that's okay, the, the mining organization that gave the award withdrew it a few years after that. Clifford Frame is alive and well in his mansion. Uh, a lot of the politicians who colluded in this set of deaths are alive and well in Ottawa. Um, the um, families of the mill workers in BC are still living with the horrific consequences of their loved ones either dying or being scalded or burnt terribly. So we still have a lot of work to do. And one of the reasons I asked Ian to see if I could come and yak at you is that uh, this one's got me by the throat. This, uh, I'm an old guy. I've done journalism and campaigning for a number of years. This may be one of my last campaigns, but I would like to see companies like Kiwit punished. I would like to see the law enforced. I would like to see us being able to send our kids or our family members off to work without being afraid that they'll be killed uselessly. And supporting this campaign is a really concrete way that you can do that. So I'm here with palpable intentions to in involve you in the campaign if I can at all. Um, we sell this little book for a minimum donation of $5 a copy. And I've got some that I would be happy to sell. All of that money goes to the survivors group in Nova Scotia that's still trying to keep this issue alive and the memory of uh, the folks who died in the mine alive. If there are more of you who want books, then uh, I've got copies. I can provide Ian with more copies for your next meeting. There are also a couple of places where you can download this um, for free. The USW has a, a website on which it sits and the BC Teachers Federation has added it to their curriculum uh, resource website. And uh, I will provide Ian with the, web, the uh, URLs for those two websites and ask him to circulate it to you guys. So buy the damn book, okay? <laughs>
tell your friends about this. Um, I don't know, do humanists indulge in social media? Is any of you on? Uh, on? Yeah, yeah. Post the book to your website. Post the story to your website. We need more people to know about this. And we need students in particular. I don't know if any of you are teachers, but if you are, I would encourage you to encourage your colleagues to teach this course where you can't, teach this material where you can. Not because the prose is so stellar, but because the story is so compelling. Um, the other thing you can do is to uh, encourage your local libraries to uh, acquire copies of this book. Uh, the Vancouver Public Library now has copies. It struck me that some of you might live in Burnaby or on the North Shore or other municipalities. Talk to your librarian and encourage them to be in touch with the steelworkers and buy copies of this book for the library. Um, it's not a total revolution if we're able to improve some of this stuff. But it will mean a lot of working people don't die unnecessarily and a lot of heartbreak is averted. And in my view, as an unreconstructed uh, anarcho-socialist, I, uh, I think that this gives you a core sample through the heart of capitalism. You see how it works. And it makes the argument for some minor to major changes in our economic system pretty compellingly. So if you have any interest in politics, this is a book to read and to thrust upon your friends and family. And with that spate of shameless self-promotion, I'll stop and uh, like to engage any thoughts or responses or questions that you have. Thank you very much.